Support the Bartholomew Town Podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, I sit down with the Executive Director of Roger Williams Park Zoo, Dr. Jeremy Goodman. Providence's Roger Williams Park Zoo has consistently been recognized as a leading zoological institution, as well as a regional tourism magnet. But with increased scrutiny being placed on animal captivity, I sat down with Roger Williams' executive director, Dr. Goodman, for a wide-ranging conversation about his operation's conservation, rehabilitation, and educational work, as well as the role that the zoo serves in the Rhode Island community. Of course, I also asked Dr. Goodman about the broad ethics of zoos and animal captivity. Hey, I've got a brand new episode of the pod for you every Tuesday and Friday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or visit BartholomewTown.com or RIPodcast.com. Let's get to it talking all things zoos. We'll go straight to the source. All right, we are here with Dr. Jeremy Goodman of Roger Williams Park Zoo and uh, an institution in Rhode Island for sure, some place that I used to go as a little kid all the time. We had a membership, the aquarium and zoo membership type of deal. If you could just give us a little bit of background on kind of your own journey in zoology and how you've landed as the executive director. Sure. Um, so my background is actually in veterinary medicine. I have a doctorate in veterinary medicine from Tufts. Um, I went to undergrad at Rutgers uh, in animal science major. Uh, I got my bachelor's there. But ever since I was a little kid, all I ever wanted to do was run a zoo. Uh, I was always just fascinated with with zoos and, and animals and, you know, and and how important zoos are to the community as far as their role and their mission for, for education and conserving animals and, and being a great place for recreation where you can spend quality family time together. So uh, it's something that I've always wanted to do since I was a little kid, and I'm living the dream right now. I, uh, you know, I started doing uh, veterinary work in private practice and Moved over. I got my first zoo job in South Bend, Indiana, at the Potawatomi Zoo, and um, then moved to the Turtleback Zoo in New Jersey, where I was there for for ten years, and 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 rebuilt that zoo and uh, got them to be uh, nationally accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and uh, and then I landed here in, in Rhode Island. Uh, I was recruited, and uh, we have a fantastic zoo here, a historic zoo, the third oldest in the country, um, and we have a national reputation for uh, our conservation programs and our education programs, so uh, very, very happy to be here, and I've uh, been here almost six years now, and uh, looking forward to, to more great things. So what's the the major initiative that the zoo is involved in would you say it's more on the conservation side is it more on the educational side how do you balance all of that so, so it is a balance. Um, you know, we, we're the number one tourist attraction, uh, paid tourist attraction in the state. So uh, we have the recreation arm. Um, we do do a lot of conservation work. Uh, so we definitely have that arm. And, and we do a, a lot of education work. So it, it is a, a balancing act because all three are very important. Uh, if, if people weren't having a good time, they wouldn't want to come, uh, which, you know, their, their attendance fees support our, our, uh, our conservation work and, and our animal care. So um, it is a balancing act. Uh, you know, but you know why we're here is all about the animals and connecting people to wildlife and wild places. 
um, you know, just really fostering that that connection, educating people on on the plight of, of animals and, and nature. Um, so they all three are actually very much in, interconnected. I do rounds throughout the zoo grounds on, on a daily basis, and you don't have to walk very far to see just kids of all ages, and that includes adults, just being inspired, um, you know, by, by the animals that, that we care for. And, um, you know, you can definitely see that connection. And it's something that, that, that you just don't get by watching Animal Planet or, or, you know, some sort of educational DVDs, things like that. Those, those are, are nice supplements. But, you know, when you're actually at our zoo and, and you're feeding a giraffe and that 18-inch tongue comes and wraps around the leaf and, and you know, pulls it right out of your hand, that is a profound moment. And that is a moment where people, the little light bulb goes on. And we see it every single day where, wow, these animals are amazing. And I can't even imagine a world and don't want to imagine a world where they're disappearing and they're not going to be here for, for future generations, which, which unfortunately is, is the case right now. So um, it's something that we do see that kind of inspiration every single day. That sort of feeds into my next question, I guess, broadly with regards to zoo ethics. I mean, we've seen such a change in terms of circuses and just the presentation in general has shifted in my lifetime for sure as far as there some zoos have shut down some circuses have changed their practices and so on and so forth do you feel like the cost benefit of humans interacting with these animals to understand them at an at an intangible level ultimately allows for humankind to hopefully treat the nature with more respect and in that sense preserve wildlife well you know I, I think you know the ethics of zoos you know really shouldn't be much much of a question I think it really should be the question needs to be the, the animal the welfare of the animals in the zoo um, you I don't see how how conserving animals and educating people is an edu- uh, is an ethical question you know that's that's what we do um, the question really should be are we taking proper care of these animals and if we are and um, they're getting proper veterinary care they're being mentally stimulated with proper enrichment programs you know all their needs are, are being met um, you know, then, then there really is no ethical question. If that's not the case and the animals are in substandard conditions, um, then yes, uh, you know, there is a, a, an issue with that. And, and, and those types of places, you know, really shouldn't exist or they need to step up their game and improve. You know, our zoo is, is, has been accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums uh, for over a quarter century. They are the, the gold standard. There's over um, 2,000 uh, zoos in this country, believe it or not, that are um, accredited by the USDA. Um, they're the governing uh, uh, agency who oversees zoos for, for the government. Um, but less than 10% of those meet the really high standards of the AZA. So um, we've been doing that from the very beginning. Uh, this year, we also voluntarily um, uh, had an audit from uh, the American Humane Association. They're the same organization that you see in the movies, no animals were harmed in this movie and, and whatnot. And uh, we brought them out uh, on our own time to uh, to um, do a full audit to make sure that we were providing good welfare for our animals. So um, it's something that the bar is always raising uh, and we're, we're up for that challenge that, that you know, we want to make sure that we are, you know, 
taking the best possible care of our animals and and not just on an emotional level but on a scientific level you know that we can back that up um you know not just saying oh i don't think they're happy but you know looking at at you know real science whether it's you know fecal stress hormones or things along those lines um to really understand you know how these animals are are doing and hopefully thriving in our care and, and if they're not then we need to change do you do you feel like you've in your time, have been able to kind of access that level of consciousness within animals just on an intangible level. Again, sort of, you know, there's no way to know what the what a creature's feeling, but do you feel like you have maybe a way to access that that feeling somehow, whether it's, you know, not necessarily purely scientific, but you just know whether or not things are right or wrong. So, so there is a, a science to it, um, believe it or not. And, and our keepers are, are so in tune with, with our animals. I'll tell you a story. One of, one of the things I remembered in veterinary school, I, I actually came in and we visited Roger Williams Park Zoo and, uh, in, in their hospital, um, they were caring for a sloth who was lethargic. Now, you have to be really in tune with with your animal to be able to pick up a sloth who is lethargic, um, and and our keepers are, are professionals, and and they are very much in in tune with their needs and 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 you know and and how they're feeling and things along those lines. Um, you know, trying to project human emotions on onto animals is is kind of a a very tricky and dangerous thing to to do. Um, like I said, you know, we we work with a variety of professionals: behaviorists, uh, veterinarians, uh, animal care professionals, animal welfare professionals that you know really understand you know the types of things um, to look for um, as far as you know behavior changes and and the things that that signal a a healthy and thriving animal. So that's really, you know, what we focus on, you know, the people who, you know, come and visit and, and see an animal sleeping uh, and, you know, claim that it's bored. Uh, I, I've got news for you. That's what animals do. You know, yeah. a lion in the wild sleeps all, almost 23 hours a day. So um, that's not boredom. That's just what animals do. And our animals aren't there to perform for people. Um, so if they want to sleep under a tree in the shade then that's what they do and and that that's not a sign of boredom that's just the freedom to to choose what they want to do any particular um exhibits coming in 2019 that bring new animals or a new look at some sort of habitat to uh, to the community so um we just just opened our newest exhibit faces of the rainforest uh at the end of november of this year so it essentially will be very new for for 2019 and it's a phenomenal new exhibit it's it's the largest single exhibit in, in the zoo's uh history and um, we brought in dozens of new species um you know for for the exhibit and that's something that, that i also want to emphasize uh, a lot of times zoo critics will say oh you're draining the wild you know from the animals you know we work with i believe it was 40 different institutions um to bring these animals in here so they're all part of a collective cooperative breeding programs we had put in um requests for a lot of these animals to be bred for us from other zoos years in advance um, because it takes a lot of planning. So this new exhibit is, is really phenomenal. It's all about um, the South American rainforest, and it, it tells a great story. Um, we use the um, the storytelling method. Um, there's an art installation in New York called Faces of New York, um, which a lot of the listeners might be familiar with, and it takes very relatable pictures uh, and, and has you know these kind of small, once again, very relatable quotes. So 
we use that methodology to kind of tell the story of first the expected faces of the rainforest, and then um, we shift it to the unexpected faces of the rainforest, and then it shifts once again towards um, you and I being a face of the rainforest and how our everyday decisions, uh, whether at the supermarket or at the coffee shop or you know when we're buying furniture, can actually have quite a significant impact on the rainforest. So I think this new exhibit is one of the um, first ones in our master plan where we're really Really, we have a, a significant call to action for our visitors who experience the exhibit um, to to leave the exhibit knowing the difference that they can make and, and challenging them to make that difference. I've spent a decent amount of time in South America. One major um, something that's that's really despised in Brazil anyway is bird trafficking. You know, capturing exotic birds for whatever and selling them off. So you're saying that a lot of these birds are they, that are in, I'm not even sure that there are birds in this exhibit but assuming there are they're actually bred in another zoo and you're just relocating them they've never been in the wild that that's correct so um you know our um you know I th- believe our caciques came from Seattle our um or appendulas came from uh, California, from San Diego. Or yeah, all the birds came from other zoos. Um, they they weren't pulled from from Brazil or anything like that. Yeah. The only animals, um, you know, the one animal that I would like to mention actually that did come from the wild is an, an incredible conservation story, and that's uh, some of our fish. Uh, we work very closely with a project called Project Piaba, which is in the uh, Rio del Negro region of the Amazon. And um, the the Amazon rises and, and, and ebbs, uh, you know, seasonally. And as the the waters uh, recede, uh, there's all these little puddles of water that fish get trapped in that would otherwise die. And um, you know what uh, this project does is actually has the the people, the natives of the area collecting these fish for the um, pet fish trade. So these are fish that would have otherwise died. Now they're providing them with a living so they don't have to sell their land off to uh, developers who, who are going to ranch it or, or, or mine it, you know, or, or di- things that are very detrimental. They understand that for the fish to thrive – you can't take down the trees because then you know you have erosion and sediment that ruins the water and kills off the fish. So it encourages them to preserve their land even you know more so than they were already doing and provides them with a living, um, a sustainable means because the reproduction strategy of, of a lot of these fish are they reproduce by the millions in the Amazon. So removing you know handfuls of, of fish for the uh, for the pet fish trade um, actually does no harm whatsoever to those populations and yet helps preserve the forest. So, um, yes, removing large parrots like macaws and whatnot out of the forest, very bad. Um, but tropical fish uh, like uh, cardinal tetras and, and, and discus and, and things along those lines uh, in a controlled, sustainable manner, very good. So uh, a lot of times these are very complicated issues and you can't just put a blanket statement of taking from the wild is bad uh, because sometimes if it's done in a sustainable way and actually helps the forest and helps the people pre- – maintain their lands as opposed to having to sell them off to developers uh, can be a good thing. So uh, sometimes these stories are very, very complicated, and it's it's very difficult to kind of try to just dumb them down. Do you feel like the zoo has a good relationship with local DEM or anything of that nature? Do you have any sort of work that you do 
with our, you know, non-exotic animals, I guess. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, we are, I would say we are the leader in, in New England for local conservation. Uh, we contribute to conservation work around the world um, on, you know, pretty much almost every continent. Uh, you know, we, we contribute to to dozens and dozens of projects worldwide. But our focus is actually right here in our own backyard. I mean, you know, uh, and, and our focus is also some of the, the species that aren't very glamorous, the American burying beetle, the timber rattlesnake, um, you know, the New England cottontail. Uh, you know, these, these are not, um, you know, African elephants or giant pandas, these, these, but they still need our help. And uh, our zoo has been a longtime leader in that field. And, and one of the things that our director of conservation, Lou Parati, does so well is he's he's a connector and he really helps facilitate all these uh, state groups, whether it's Rhode Island, DM, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut. We work with you know all the New England states. We work with other zoos like uh, the Queen Zoo, which is part of the Wildlife Conservation Society, on our, on our rabbit breeding projects. So. You know, we facilitate bring all these entities together, and we we frequently house um, you know these meetings where all these different state agencies and federal agencies, as well as other you know and pri- private conservation organizations, come together um, to work together for a common goal, which is really really important. So, um, yeah. Sometimes the exotic uh, conservation stories get get a lot of the press, but um, you know we understand that conservation begins in our own backyard, and and it's something that we're really proud of uh, working with some of those uh, um, lesser, I hate to say, less charismatic species because we think they are very charismatic, but uh, um, less charismatic according to the general public. But uh, and the other thing that we really try to do is we try to get people involved as well. We're involved with two citizen science projects that that we. Um, our, 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 uh, one we head up, which is our Frog Watch program, which um, we teach people, um, uh, just everyday people like you and me, uh, that to identify frog calls. And then they um, enter that data where they heard it, when they heard it, into a national database. Um, and scientists can use all that data to track, you know, why certain frogs were in an area, why they're disappearing, uh, where they're disappearing to, where they're popping up maybe. Um, so it's a great project that teaches people, everyday people, um, how to get involved with, with real science. The other one that we're, we're very involved with is we partner with uh, the Rhode Island Natural History Survey, and, and we host the training for, for the uh, annual BioBlitz. And that's another great citizen science program where you can go out and over a 24-hour period uh, identify every single living thing within that that study range. And uh, uh, they're both great experiences and, and great family activities as well. We have uh, university scientists out there, hobbyists come join us, elementary school kids come out and, and experience it. So, um, you know, to answer your question, we do a lot locally. Yeah, I love that term, citizen science as well. I mean, that is beautiful that really can take place on a daily basis. I grew up in Charlestown out in the woods and spent a lot of time hanging out with turtles. I'd collect, you know, I was really fascinated by turtles. I had a turtle farm for a few summers. I'd always, my mom would always make me release them on the last day of summer into Warden's Pond or whatever. But I've noticed over the last 15 years, a lot less turtles. I haven't looked as hard, but just seems like there's less turtles. Seems like wild turkey populations have expanded. It just seems like things have shifted in South County. Is that, that's obviously anecdotal. Do you suspect there's any kind of scientific evidence to back up the idea that development 
has increased and now there's less frogs and turtles hanging out in Charlestown? Um, you know, it, it's hard to say, and that's why we really do need the science to, to be able to track that. And, and you know, one of our projects uh, that we just started, uh, I believe, almost two years ago right now is looking at wood turtles and, and their prevalence uh, uh, in the wild. Because if, if we don't know their numbers and we don't know their historic numbers, then, then it really is just pure conjecture on, on our part. So really getting that, that data. And if you really want to protect a the species, then, then you need that data. Um, you can't just say, I think they're disappearing, so therefore we should protect them. Uh, it usually doesn't fly very well with, with legislation and whatnot. Right. So um, it's it's something that we're, we are very involved with, and and things are changing. I mean, you know, certain populations are disappearing, and other populations are, are increasing. So. Um, and there usually is a reason. One of the things that we love so much about that Frog Watch um, program is that you know frogs are certainly a sentinel species. They are the proverbial canaries in the coal mine, and um, because of their permeable skin, they are very sensitive to um, you know environmental changes and, and uh, you know things like pesticides and toxins in the environment. So uh, when frogs start disappearing, um, you know that's that's a sign that, that there's more to come. So um, yeah, I. I, I do believe that your um, kind of anecdotal experience is, is is probably right on the money. Your relationship with state lawmakers, you've you were in the news recently on the bullhook issue. Uh, the, uh, there must be more issues that you get involved with, you know, advocating for legislation to be passed or not passed, and so on and so forth. What's that like for you? That your your role as sort of a a lobbyist, if you will. Well, I, I think we're more of an educator than a lobbyist, uh, quite honestly. <laughs> That's a bad word, um, I know, but <laughs> but you know, it, it is important to us because unfortunately, there are, there are a lot of groups that that have agendas out there, um, whether they're anti-zoo agendas or even if they mean well, um, you know, where they're just not not accurate and and you know, and there's developers that have agendas as well. There, there's there's a lot of different competing interests, so. What we really encourage all of our legislators to do is to use the, the zoo as a resource. We have experts in education, in the environment, in conservation, in animal welfare. Um, so we really encourage legislators when there's there's legislation to pass, um, you know, in any of those areas that to use this as a resource and, and you know, because – as, as we all know, the devil is really in the detail in a lot of these laws, and they can mean well, but if, if there there's a single phrase that's that you know isn't worded properly, it can really you know either make it going from effective to non-effective, or it can have you know unintended consequences as well. So um, you know that's really where we see our role. I mean, we we've certainly pushed and partnered with other organizations uh, um, to try to pass a an ivory bill in Rhode Island to, to outlaw the sale of ivory um, because, you know, elephants are being slaughtered on a, on a regular basis. I mean, almost a hundred a day are being slaughtered for their ivory and, 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 you know, they're going to be disappearing. It, it is. And, and, you know, it makes no sense to me and why, you know, why we can't get this passed. But so, so we, we do try to pass certain pieces of legislation and, you know, and we are oftentimes fighting anti-zoo legislation as well. Um, but you know, our, our big goal is really to to educate the lawmakers and and to partner with our other conservation partners uh, to make sure that there's there's sound legislation for the environment and in pro conservation uh, legislation uh, in the state. Absolutely, and on the ivory, you would think maybe that's the Scrimshaw lobby in Newport. You know, that's those are 
hundreds of thousands, if not million dollar businesses that they're selling whale and whale bone and, and tusks to people, you know, on the street. So if you're out there, <laughs> maybe don't buy that. Right. You know, I mean, that, that's all we can really encourage people is that, if, if you know, if there's no demands for it, um, you know, then then that's the biggest help. So uh, hopefully we can get some of these these anti, uh, you know, ivory laws uh, in place. But uh, in the meantime, certainly, you know, do due diligence and, uh, you know, ask if there's any ivory in the product that you're you're looking to buy. And if there is, then, you know, just I would avoid it. Um, and the zoo's open now, even though it's cold, it's wide open. Come on out. Yeah, the zoo's open. Um, you know, we're we're open year round and uh, winter's one of my four favorite seasons to come to the zoo. So uh, uh, a lot of our animals are more active uh, in, in the winter. Our snow leopards, our red pandas, our bison, you know, in the heat of the summer, oftentimes they're, they're sleeping in, you know, in, in a cool area. But uh now they're they're very active this time of year, and uh, um, we're open. Everything's on our website, uh, rwpzoo.org. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the other things that if I kind of had a last parting statement is people don't realize that the zoo is actually a not-for-profit. Um, you know, we're, uh, like I said, a conservation education organization. Our, our ticket fees only cover part of the work we do. So, um, you know, we're, we're really working hard, uh, you know, to, to raise money so we can, you know, get it out there and do all the great things that we do. So, um, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people remember the old days when it used to be a, a city entity. Uh, the, the, the zoo is still owned by the city, but uh, the Rhode Island Zoological Society has been managing it for a number of years now. And, uh, um, um, you know, it's it's one of those things that that we really uh, do rely on people's support, um, you know, to make all these great things happen. And of course, just keeping the the brand alive as well. I mean, it's a legacy brand in Rhode Island. You know, there's less and less of those for even on the commercial side. Benny's and the Paw Socks are gone, but the zoo that's thriving and growing in your mind. It, it is. We're coming up on our 150th anniversary, and uh, we're really excited. We're going to be planning a whole year's long worth of events that's in uh, 2022, but we're already planning it. And you know, it's one of those things when we talk about you know, kind of Rhode Island landmarks. You know, the zoo is the home of, of the Sentinel Dog, and uh, you know, I don't think there's a single family in Rhode Island that doesn't have their picture um, on that dog statue and uh, and we have some people that come and that's their their holiday card every single year and, uh, and I think the zoo is something that uh, you know is a Rhode Island tradition and is something that Rhode Islanders really should be proud of and uh, it's a great asset for the state um, and like I said we just have plans to just you know make sure that it stays relevant and that we keep getting better and that we, you know, we fulfill our mission of, of conservation education and animal care. Thank you doctor appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's always great to spend time together, and I look forward to our next podcast episode coming your way on Tuesday. You can also stay up to date with all of my latest content on Instagram at Bartholomew Town Podcast. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon. Discover the dozens of conversations I've had on the Bartholomew Town Podcast with Rhode Island politicians, media members, artists, and beyond at BartholomewTown.com, RIPodcast.com, or on Apple Podcasts.